0: let's go. Hey, welcome friends in the room, friends in Houston. I know you guys are meeting. Hey, I love y'all too. Uh, Welcome friends in Northwest Fayetteville, Arkansas, and the other 13 live locations. Uh, I know Fort Worth tonight is also gathering. So uh, depending on where you're at, welcome everyone and everybody just tuning in from online. It has been a minute and gosh, man, it is good to see you guys. And like JD said, some of y'all, you guys got You got plans after time or something. Hey, I'm gonna uh, welcome you in something that happened recently in my life since last time we were all together. I do pretty much the same thing every single day after I get home from work. I go into the house, I kiss my wife, kiss my kids, and then I take our 130-pound Rhodesian Ridgeback on a walk. Now, I don't walk, and I don't run, so I have a longboard. Yes, just like that 14-year-old that you grew up with. And I take him on the longboard. We have a shock collar. Don't email me. He never gets shocked. He's like a big baby elephant that you got to take on a walk once a day. And I take him on one lap around the block, get him a longboard, hop on there, no leash. He just follows right behind me. I finish it and then we go inside. A couple days ago, I was doing that, got home, took the lap with the dog and I went up to the house and I was about to go inside and I smelled smoke. And you know when you have that experience where you could smell like, you know, it was like six o'clock at night and there's a difference when you smell something like grilling steaks. It smells like hickory or like, man, that sounds great. And then you have all, we've all smelled what is clearly like, something is burning around here, like significantly burning. So I begin to go, is somewhere on our house something on fire? Like, and I begin to like look around the outside, kind of the perimeter of the house, and look through and be like, man, because that, that's not a good thing. Anytime that happens, where is this smell coming from? I mean, really strong smell. And I get around the house, and I don't see anything, and, and so I, I begin to kind of wonder, is there something on with the neighbor's house? And I go over, I'm in my alley, behind my neighbor's house, and between my house, and I see clearly smoke coming up from the backyard and not just like any smoke like oh maybe they're doing s'mores you know that's what people do in june like a (laughs) thick white billowing cloud of smoke like clearly something is burning over there and i'm beginning to go like man what is possibly going on and i come up to the fence and i didn't want to just like open their gate and go into their backyard like hey it's the neighbors we're coming over if they were just i don't know what they could have been doing but i I couldn't see so i go up to the fence and i begin to just like try to peek over and see what's going on (laughs) hoping there's no one like sunbathing nude or something going on and I begin to like look over uh and which clearly if they're doing that and they have smoke they they've got more problems than we can talk about here but anyway so I begin to like try to look at the fence but it was too tall it was a really high fence so it was one of those moments where guys at least you've all experienced this when you were a kid and you threw a ball over the fence and you had to like hop over where I'm jumping up to try and hold myself for a second just to see and I keep jumping up to hold myself hoping that no one's looking out the window like who's this psychopath that is jumping over our our, our fence And all I can see is smoke. I mean like thick white smoke. I can't see the fire. And because as far as I could get up there, I couldn't see what was down below. And so I take the dog, the baby elephant, take him back home, put him inside. And I'm like, hey, uh, talking to my wife, I'm gonna go check on, there's something burning in the neighbor's yard. And by the time I got back over there, you know, maybe they had seen me jumping over. Someone had put the fire out. And I still never quite figured out exactly what was taking place back there. But the reason I start there is because in that moment, I know that there's a fire that is taking place. And fire is not necessarily one of those bad things where anytime it's present, you're like, hey, this is an emergency. We need to make sure that we put that out. Fire can be a great thing. It's not inherently a bad thing. A fire in a fire pit in your backyard can be awesome. A fire moving through your property, burning the fence or burning your house is an incredibly destructive thing. But it's not inherently or not always necessarily a bad thing. It depends on what the source of the fire is, on why there's a fire there, on what it's burning. What does it have to do with seven deadly sins? Tonight, we're going to talk about a deadly sin that is very similar to fire. And that it's not inherently, every time it's there, a bad thing. There's plenty of times where it's appropriate to be there. But if unchecked, or if there for the wrong reason, or expressed in the wrong way, just like a fire, is incredibly destructive. And that seventh deadly sin or that one of the deadly sins is anger. Anger is one of those things that inside of your life, it's not always a wrong thing. There are appropriate times. The Bible says God is angry at times in Scripture, specifically at injustice in our world. You can't love someone and not experience anger, right? Like if I love someone and someone is hurting them or abusing them, I would rightly feel anger, righteous anger towards that person. We're told that God feels that. There's appropriate times to have anger. It's not always bad. When you look at the news and you see what happens with George Floyd, you should appropriately feel anger. That is wrong, not okay. There's appropriate experiences of anger. But at the same time, there's also not appropriate experiences of anger or expressions of anger. There's sinful anger that can take place. It depends on what the source, what the cause, what's taking place. Tonight, we're not talking about righteous anger. We're going to talk about the deadly sin of sinful anger, because I'm like, several, really all of them can be toxic, but this one in particular, the effects are seen and are rippling all throughout our culture of anger being experienced and not knowing how to express it, and what we're about to talk about tonight, I promise you this, if just Christians would apply the things that we're going to look at, myself, you if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, if just us would apply the teaching of Jesus on it relates to this, our world would change. It's one of the things that, it's impossible to not look around. People are angry about corona. People are angry about their job. People are angry about the fact that they can't work. People are angry about the fact that they are work. People are angry about the fact that we're streaming or we're meeting right now. People are angry about any list of things. And oftentimes, sinful anger can grab our hearts and anytime time it does, it is devastating and it is destructive. And this will destroy your marriage if you allow it to. It will destroy your relationships if you allow it to. But it doesn't have to. So we're going to look at three things in the Scripture. What is the root of anger? Because I think it will surprise you. And we're going to look at the results over and over. The Scriptures say, if you don't deal with your anger, that will take place. And then look at the remedy that God uniquely provides in our world unlike any other remedy that our world has to offer. So we're going to look at the roots. If you take notes, the roots, the results, and the remedy. The first one, the root of sinful anger. Let me ask a few questions before we go in there. Because the challenge with anger is it kind of masks itself. So most people are like, look, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. I'm not angry, and it kind of masks behind these little things. But here's some ways that you may know that you're angry. Is there anyone in your life that a part of you hopes that they fail? or they suffer? You got some anger and bitterness buried in your heart. Is there anyone whose name, when you bring them up, it makes you upset? Thinking about what they did makes you upset. Anger and bitterness have taken root. Is there anyone who you would avoid in public, or you wouldn't want to go to that party, you wouldn't want to go there or go to that dinner if they were around, because of something that happened between you? There's anger. Is there anyone you're waiting? Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's an old roommate. You're waiting to let back into your life till they apologize and say what they did or pay back for what they did. There's anger that's taking place. You can't always tell on the outside. A lot of times the most angry people, they're just totally internal and they just replay tapes over and over in their head. They got these constant kind of battles going on in their mind and they wouldn't think of themselves as angry because they're not very vocal about it. But there's anger buried in their heart. Oftentimes leading them to keep those feelings to themselves, which only makes it worse. So the root of sinful anger, where does it come from? Jesus says this in Mark chapter 7, verse 21. For it is within and out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. Wait a second, thoughts Come from your heart? Jeez, I think you mean the mind. The Bible, over and over, when it talks about the heart and the mind, it just kind of talks about the control center, the command center of your operating system, if you will, of your thing. So when it says hearts, thoughts come out of the hearts. Well, what's surprising is what he mentions next. Here's the evil thoughts that come out of your heart. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. What do you say, Jesus, those those are all actions. What do you mean that those are evil thoughts? Jesus says, every evil action comes from an evil thought that has taken place in the mind. And all of that comes from the heart. All of these are evils and they come from inside and they defile a person. Jesus says, sinful anger, what leads to malice, what leads to murder, comes from within the heart. In other words, typically when I get angry, I get upset, I usually don't think, oh man, there's something going on inside of me. I think, this person lied to me this person took credit for something that they didn't do this person cut me off in traffic and they need to learn how to drive i think that the expressions of anger come from the outside and jesus says no 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 no. anger comes from within you may go through life and it'll trigger it stress will trigger your anger and all of a sudden you're just really overwhelmed at work and you explode on your roommate or you lash out at your friend and jesus would say that's not because of the stress. That's because you have something broken inside of your heart. The root of your anger comes from within. If you don't fix that, you cannot fix your anger. Jesus' baby brother, Jesus or James, his baby brother was not named Jesus. That would be interesting. <laughs> James, at some point in his life, trusted in Christ. We don't have time to go into that, but how crazy is that? His little brother. And he writes a book called the book of James. And the fourth chapter of that book, listen to what he says about what causes conflict, causes division, causes fights. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, James, let me give you the answer. She was mean. She was hurtful. They didn't respond. They didn't invite me to come. Nope. They come from your desires that battle within you. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. And James is exaggerating. And he's saying, like, you desire, so you don't have, so you kill. And all of us will go, no, 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 I've never killed. The same expression that leads to killing someone. It's anger, hatred, bitterness. And James says all of that anger, it doesn't come from the outside. It doesn't come from what was done or wasn't done against you. It comes from within. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, it says this. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up and causes trouble and defiles many. The Bible says like bitterness, think about this, it's so brilliant. It's like a root that will come in your life, and as it grows, it begins to impact your life. Why is that brilliant? Because what's a root? A root is something that, you know, the roots of a plant, the roots of a flower are something beneath the surface. You can't see them, but they're impacting everything that you can see on the surface. This is what the author Hebrew says. You know, that's like what bitterness is like. It's this thing that is beneath the surface, and it just gets buried underneath there, and somebody called you a name in sixth grade, and every time now anybody insults the way that you look on the outside— He said, there's a root of bitterness that's growing underneath, and you can't see it, but it's buried there, and it's affecting everything, just like the roots of a flower affect everything that you can see above the surface. That root of bitterness is going to affect everything above the surface in your life, and if you want to deal with anger or sinful anger, it involves dealing with it at a heart level. In other words, the temptation will always be or often be to think that anger is something that is caused by other people around us. As though like, you know, I'm justified in what I did because of, you know, the actions that they took. My roommate, all of a sudden, I come home. We've been sharing a room for a while. I've told him so many times, when you wash the dishes and you get dishes in there, make sure that you don't leave it out because your little crusty noodles end up caking to the outside of the metal. And it's disgusting. And how many times, what am I, your mom right now? And you think that, man, I'm angry because of that. Jesus says, no, no, no. Anger comes from within. Is like, this would be you and I's heart, and inside of it has a potential and the capacity to carry around anger. And then something triggers it where a roommate comes out and comes all of a sudden, and they fail to, you know, clean up the dishes that they had, or they borrowed your clothes without even asking. And all of a sudden, boom, and it pops out. And it's not because of something that they did. What they did just triggered the anger that is already inside of your heart to come out. This is the way the Bible talks about it, that you'll be going along and road rage. People are driving, and you think it's because, look, you're driving, we're going up 75, and we're locked, gridlock here, and everyone, if you could just learn how to drive, and you explode, and you think it's because people don't know how to drive. You think it's because people, if we could all just drive 70 people, the problem would go away. And James says, no, 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 no. Jesus says, no, the anger, it's already in there. Those are just triggers that are bringing it out to the surface. At work, where you snap and you respond to a coworker, or to your boss, or you lash out with an email because they got credit for something that they didn't do. Or you lash out because you didn't get credit because, you, because of something you did do. And Jesus says something really profound and really necessary if you and I are going to experience freedom from anger, which is knowing anytime that anger pops up, it's a heart issue. It's underneath the surface. There is a way to address it. And if you do not address it, It, like any fire that seeps out, will continue to burn and bring destruction to everything it touches. And let me just say this. In the room, all of us have certain levels of anger that are buried in our heart. And all of us also express that anger in different ways. Like there's really at least two categories of people in the room. There would be people when it comes to getting angry, they would be what you would call an exploder. This is the guy, gets upset, punches a hole in the wall. We're very clearly like, yes, he has an anger problem. Very easy to see. This is the girl who, you know, gets upset, just goes on... You know rampage online and she is keyboard carrying going to everybody's comments being like I can't believe you and it's clear like man she's clearly angry so there's the exploder and then there are the imploders this is a much more difficult to see perspective on anger or expression of anger this is the person who doesn't explode outwardly they get hurt and they just shut down they begin you hurt them in a relationship they totally withdraw this person ends up Behaving passively aggressive towards you or, you know, she's like, uh, you're friends or you thought you were friends. And you're like, well, why didn't you invite me to the party? And she's like, oh, what? And she just behaves in a way. <laughs> or she's passively aggressive. Is in passive aggressive meaning on the outside it's passive. But there's clearly anger and hurt that is, taping, that is taking place. And just as angry and hurt and seeping with bitterness can be that person. Often the imploder, if you are one, you deny your anger. And somebody hurts you and you don't even have time to totally process it all in the moment. And so they're like, hey, I'm sorry, did that hurt you? And you're like, no, no, everything's fine. Just please leave me alone for the rest of my life. And that's what you do. <laughs> but you harbor that anger and you're gonna carry it around and you may not last out right at the person who hurt you, but you'll carry it around and it will come out even on people who have nothing to do with that hurt. But the root of all of it is at the heart, and there is a way to address it. Ultimately, the results of what happens from sinful anger are the same every single time. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. Most famous sermon Jesus ever gave, just picture it. They called it a mount, Sermon on the Mount, because he taught it. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, we're told, from a mountainside. Jesus is sitting there early in his ministry, very first message he ever gives. Thousands of people gathered around, see it. This Israeli 33- or 30-year-old rabbi shows up, and he begins to teach and blow everybody's category in the sermon. And this is one of the things that he says, you've heard it said long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister or a person will be subject To judgment, that word subject to judgment is just out of step with God's command. Has fallen short of what God commands. In other words, Jesus is like, you guys put the line at murder. As long as you don't murder, no anger problem. Jesus says, no, that's not where God puts the line. Anyone who holds anger in their heart is out of step with God. Now the word anger in this context of being angry is not the word like you had an angry thought one a one-off occasion. It's a word to dwell on or focus on that anger. Continue to replay it not deal with it. In other words, it's not an anger you feel in a moment. It's an anger you, you fuel or you feed over time. But you keep replaying, you keep replaying, and the more you replay it, the more you continue to not believe more and more the best about someone, you believe the worst and worst and worst and worst and worst. And Jesus says, when you do that, you are just as guilty and just as off as the person who murders. And then he says, Verse 23, if you are offering a gift at the altar, that'd be like if you're going to church, and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, I want you to leave your gift at the altar, in the front of the altar. you go there to church, raising, you turn graves into gardens, yes, I will, and you realize, man, I think that Becky was hurt by the tone of that email or my text message or what I did. He says, in that moment when you realize that, I want you to leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled in that relationship. Then come back and offer your gift. Why would you say that, Jesus? Because Jesus knew that the results of sinful anger every time are broken relationships. Every time sinful anger takes place in your heart, every time you allow it and I allow it to exist in your hearts, the damage that's going to take place is damage to you and damage to your relationships. And I'm not even talking about like, oh, well, you know, Becky hurt me in that moment, so now I guess Becky and I are just gonna be off. You harbor that bitterness, and it's gonna show itself back up in all kinds, every relationship, or lots more relationships than just that one. Because the damage or the results of sinful anger in the heart are always broken relationships. Jesus says something really profound. I think about this. I don't know, maybe you're here and a friend invited you, and you're not even sure where you are in faith what Jesus just said to his audience. How category-blowing was this? I want you to prioritize over giving any sort of sacrifice, over coming to the church and worship. I want you to prioritize your your horizontal relationships with other people above this one. Like in other words, hey, we're not going to be good if you continue to live not good with other people. You continue to hide behind like, well, you know, they hurt me and they need to come apologize to me because really, I, you know, I may have not been the best in that moment, but if anybody is at fault, it's them, Jesus would say. You just recognize that you're off with someone and you should go seek that person out because if you don't, broken relationship will take place there. It'll take place in your future. And in a way, it disconnects you from right re- relating to God. Some of you were really hurt by your dad. And I love you. I see you. I love this group. I love this generation. I believe in this generation. And as a bigger brother in life, I'm telling you, you've got to forgive him. Holding on to that is only going to hurt you. And you know what? If I knew your story and I knew what happened, I would be angry too. You holding on to that and that anger, it's not going away. And it's going to keep following you. So as someone who has no skin in the game other than I care about each one of you, you have got to deal with that hurt. Some of you have a past job, and you weren't treated right there. And so one day, you just kind of like went MIA, and you were like, I'm going to do ghosting to my work. And I'm just saying, I'm done. I'll leave the computer, and I'm not coming back anymore because... I've been updating my LinkedIn profile and I got some leads, and I'm going to run that direction because you guys don't appreciate me and ain't nobody got time for that. And you decided you were going to let that hurt rule your life. And you may need to call up your old boss and say, Hey, I didn't act like God would have had me. And the way that I responded to how I was feeling or the hurt that I experienced was wrong. And you need to forgive and make the decision. And I'm going to talk more in a second about what that looks like. Some of you are angry, understandably, you're just angry at men. Because you were sexually abused. And it wasn't your fault. And that type of action angers the heart of God. And it was wrong. It wasn't deserved. And it wasn't okay. But you've got to work through that hurt and that anger. And I hate that you feel that. And it's really understandable you feel that. But if you keep holding that, it is not going away. And God loves you. He doesn't want you to go through life holding on to that pain and that anger. Because it's not hurting them, it's hurting you and will continue to hurt you. I don't know what experience is. Maybe it's family or a sibling or a past roommate. And you're really hurt, understandably really hurt. A boyfriend who cheated on you. But if you hold on to that bitterness, it'll continue to grow, to add more experiences like it and like a fire will eventually make its way out and hurt any relationship that's in your life. When I do counseling with marriage or with couples, when I do marriage counseling or I agree to marry someone, I ask the same question. One of the questions I ask, I ask it every time. And I ask both the groom-to-be and the bride-to-be, is there anyone in your life who you have not forgiven? Parent, parent. Pastor is there anyone that you're harboring and holding to bitterness on? And if they say, yes, so-and-so, I tell them I won't do the wedding until they've worked through that. And it's not because I don't love them. It's not because I don't care about them. It's because I love them so much. I want them to make sure they enter into marriage with the footing that I'm not going through life holding on to hurts and bitterness and anger and grudges. Because if you hold on to hurts before you get into marriage... You're gonna hold on to them when you get in there. Because you're already used to it. This is just what I do. When somebody really deeply hurts me, and almost always the case, the answer to that question, if someone says yes, I haven't forgiven this person, you know what it is? It's not that, oh, you know what? The, the grocery clerk at Trader Joe's was like, Oh, you can have one bag. And I was like, oh my gosh, and I'm, this is the person I'm angry. It's never that person. It's my dad. It's my mom. She walked out. It's my sister. It's some, like, intimate relationship. And I lovingly look and I say, if you can't work through that and forgive that person, you're not ready to marry him or you're not ready to marry her. Because that intimate relationship that really hurts you, that's generally how it gets hurt. Is it's like it's a father figure. It's a mother figure. It's a sibling. It's my own blood. That's why the pain is so deep. You will have the same experience with your husband, with your wife. Listen to me very closely if you have not forgiven people, as lovingly as I can say it, you are not ready to get married. 85% of you, 80% of you will get married by age 35. So everyone but y'all, and uh, (laughs) I'm totally kidding. That's true. Statistically speaking, that's true. Statistically speaking, what else is true is 50% of you will get divorced. Why? Because people go through life, and they hold on to these hurts, and they feel justified in these hurts, and I can't believe that they did that, and no one ever says, you need to deal with that pain. You need to deal with that hurt. Then they take it into marriage, and then the most intimate human relationship you can have. Anyone know what that is? It's not your sister. It's your spouse, the person who the most intimate relationship you have, and then they hurt you. And just how deeply intimate it is also equates to how deeply painful it will be when they hurt you, and they will hurt you. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes not intentionally. It's just a part of being married to another sinful human being. So if you haven't worked through, and you're the person who, man, when I get hurt, I hold on, I hit the ejection button, I get out, you are not ready to get married. Because when you move in that direction, marriage is one deep hurt after another and having to choose. I'm not holding on to this grudge. What I mean, like imagine with me. I saw this illustration, a friend of mine shared it with me, and I was just like, it's such a great illustration. Especially for this group as it relates to marriage. And I know a lot of you are like, dude, I'm not even dating. And you're angry at me because we're talking about marriage. I know you're not. I'm saying before you even get there, you need to know if you hold on to that hurt, you hold on to even to that roommate, and I can't believe that he did that, and I don't talk to him anymore. You're the type of person that is going to hold on to hurt against your spouse because you're going to get in there, and you're going to realize as great as, you know, if you're dating in are room, you're like, not us, baby. We're together forever. It's amazing. You're going to realize there are going to be times where they deeply hurt you. And you're gonna find yourself going, I cannot believe that. And all of a sudden, if you make, you're already making the practice that, hey, I got hurt, I hold on to it. You're gonna hold on to it, and the more that you do, it's gonna wall off and separate you from that other person. What do I mean? You're gonna get in a marriage, and all of a sudden, you're gonna be around that special someone, girl. And you guys got married, like, go there with me in your heads. So you guys got married, it was beautiful. You're probably not even dating, but just mentally, put a faceless person next to you, and you're like, they look like everything I ever wanted in them, and this is so great, and they have the job that we want, and we're married together. Go there with me for it. It just happened. You get married, things are going great, honeymoon, everything's awesome. Eventually you're like, oh man, you brought into this relationship debt. We gotta get rid of your debt, or we gotta get rid of my debt. So we're getting on a budget, honey. And then she's gonna show up and she's gonna say, hey, great news, I know you're gonna be pumped for me. There was a sale at Nordstrom's. And so they had these shoes and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that uh, it would be like wrong to not buy these shoes because uh, I'm gonna need shoes eventually and this is the most affordable I've ever seen them before. And you're gonna be like, we're on a budget, babe. Why did you not follow the budget we agreed to that we set out on? You, you like continue to do this. And I'll tell you why, it's because you're selfish. You don't care about it, and you'll lash out, and you'll hold to that grudge, and all of a sudden, that offense gets buried inside of your heart. And you begin to go, this is just who she is. She doesn't care. Same thing's gonna happen to girls. we are gonna find yourself, your husband, all of a sudden, you had weekend plans. And when you were dating, one of the things you loved about him was he was flexible, He was just, you know, go lucky. He doesn't keep a calendar. Like, he's not rigid, and I'm a little type A. And so it really balances us out, and I just love that about him. And then you get married, and you know what? You had a shower planned, a good friend of you. Maybe your bridesmaid in your wedding. She's got a wedding shower coming up, and you were supposed to go as a couple shower. You're going to go together. And he double booked because, remember, you married a guy who's not rigid, doesn't keep a calendar. So he's a little flexible, and you're like, you don't even care about me. You knew how important this was to me. And the thing that you were so like, oh, I just love that about him. All of a sudden, you're like, you don't care. Then one night, you come home and one of you decides you're gonna initiate sex. And the other person finds himself going, oh man, it's just been like a really stressful time or I'm just really tired right now and I'm just kind of not in the mood. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, no, we won't. No, we'll always be in the mood. I'm gonna marry someone with the same sex drive that I have. We'll always be in the mood. No, you won't. And you're thinking right now, no, he's wrong, we totally won't. Nope, you're still wrong. Not gonna happen. And you are gonna initiate sex, and they are gonna say no. And you are gonna feel offended, and you're gonna go, what? oh, what, do you just think I'm fat now? Is that what this is about? And you're gonna run there and think, he doesn't care about me. And all of a sudden, that offense continues to build, and to build, and to build. And then, we didn't even introduce the in-laws, okay? <laughs> and she's got a really close relationship with her mom. So she calls her mom all the time. And you know, when you were dating, you didn't even realize it because you didn't see her on the phone all the time because you didn't live together. And she would just call her mom every night after she got done with the date. She's driving home, she's calling her mom. You don't even know it. They're really close, talks all the time. Then you get married, you live together. You see it all the time. Sitting on the couch, you're like, I thought we were gonna watch the show. And she's talking to her mom, giving the update. And when she has trouble, she needs advice. Who does she call? She calls her mom. You had no idea. And all of a sudden you begin to think, this woman doesn't even respect me. She doesn't care about my opinion. She just cares about her mom. She cares about what she thinks way more than she does what I think. And all of a sudden, bitterness after bitterness, then you got holidays. And you were like, man, holidays are going to be great. I can't wait. Once you get to the fact that, hey, you now divide the carries on the holidays. So you're like, oh, we're we going to Christmas at your mom's or Christmas at my mom's. And she's like, well, um, I think we both know that. you're you, your family's a little awkward, and my gives the best gifts, and so this feels, like, really easy. Let's do Thanksgiving with yours, and you're like, Thanksgiving? That's like the B-team version of holiday. You don't care. You know my mom gave birth to me, right? And all of a sudden, what gets buried is anger, bitterness, and hurt. And then he ends up working late, and you had plans that night, and you're like, I told you we had dinner with the Smiths. Do you not care about our family? And he's like, yes. What do you think I do at work all day? Just get a massage? I care about our family. I work really hard. And both of you go, you don't care. You don't care about our family. You don't care that I work. And all of a sudden, step after step, it just begins to grow. And then you introduce little ones. Those are going to be fun. They got these little kids. They look like you. It's little mini me, little girl, princess dresses all the time. Super fun. They also don't sleep that great. So one of you is going to be what we call a light sleeper. And what's going to happen is they're going to be the one who hears the children at night. Typically, this is always the mom. They've got some weird spidey sense. But they end up waking up in the middle of the night. They hear the kids crying out there like, and they wonder, why don't you care about our kids? I'm always the one getting up in kids. And I'd like a little help from time to time because I'm up all hours of the night and you don't even care. And I kicked you six times last night and you don't care about your children. And it continues to grow and grow. And you know what's weird? Like you get better over time as you do these things and you begin to hold on and little things that you're like how did that even become a thing it becomes a thing what do I mean like eventually after those little kids come you're gonna be sometimes things happen with the body and hormones and there I go and the wife will feel like man, I just don't feel as pretty as I used to feel and I can't work out nearly as much because I have these babies all around me all the time that are just little milk monsters and I, I feel like I'm just kind of gross and then you get this sale and you get that dress and he was like, get that dress and you get that dress and you get home, you're going to a banquet for his work and you put it on and you're like, oh man, I just, I just need some affirmation right now. I just feel like I've, it's been kind of gross for a while and I just want to look pretty and just be affirmed and you ask your husband, how do I look? And he says, great. men, She doesn't want you to say, great. She wants you to say, oh, wow, we are getting a babysitter. We are canceling the banquet. We're getting a hotel is what we're getting. That's what she wants you to say. But she doesn't hear that. So all of a sudden she runs to, great. I look great. He doesn't even love me. And one by one by one, your relationship begins to get walled off. And that offense after offense builds a fence between the two of you. It happens, it's happening. It's why the divorce rate is what it is. And if you can't learn to be the type of person that doesn't hold on and say, I'm keeping this, you're not ready for marriage. And if you're in a place where you're seriously dating and moving that direction and you haven't forgiven people in your life, Talk about that in just a second. You are not ready to move in that direction. And now is the time, whether you're single, dating, or whatever you're at, to begin to form the habit. I don't hold on to these. Because any time I do, it's going to keep showing up and keep breaking down relationships. Jesus says it happens every time. But there is a solution. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27 says this. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down. Well, you're angry, do not give the devil a foothold. Get rid, I want you to listen to this next verse. The Apostle Paul wrote this next verse from a Roman jail cell where law enforcement had wrongly arrested him for a crime he did not commit. He was waiting to be killed for the crime of being a Christian. He went sitting, you know, drinking a latte at some all-inclusive resort when he wrote what he was about to write. It's pretty crazy. And as he leaned back with scars on his back from being whipped against the jail cell, he penned down the following words in 60 A.D. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. All bitterness, Paul? All of it. Brawling and slander and every form of malice, which is just ill will towards people. How do I do that, Paul? Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other just as Christ, just as in Christ, God forgave you. The remedy for sinful anger is forgiveness. And I'm making a decision to forgive. Now, what does forgiveness mean? Because this is a word that's really churchy that most people are like, oh yeah, I know what it means. And they don't, like forgive and forget, that's right. No, that's not right. What does forgiveness mean biblically? Everyone following me? It means I'm releasing in the face of hurt, in the face of harm taking place against me, in the face of whatever has made me angry, angry and bitter. I'm choosing to release my demand for justice, Or for payback to God. I'm choosing, hey, you cheated on me, and I'm really angry, and I want you to suffer because of that. I'm choosing to forgive you by releasing the demand that's in my heart for justice to God. Forgiveness is not excusing sin. It's not saying, oh, it's not that big of a deal. No, sin is a huge deal. It's such a big deal, Jesus had to die for it. Forgiveness does not require forgetting. In fact, I don't even know that you can fully forgive someone if you just forget. That'd be awesome if men in black could just show up and be like, hey, you never remember this again. No. Real forgiveness shows itself in the night, you did that, and I forgive you. I'm not holding you accountable for paying back, for what you owe me, for what you took, for how you hurt me. It's releasing that to God. I'm trusting God with justice. Forgiveness is not denying your hurt, Or your anger. And forgiveness is not conditional. It does not require the person to ask for forgiveness. Or to own their part. Or even be present. It's releasing the demand for justice to God. The Bible just said, how do we forgive? And Paul said, you forgive like God forgave you when you didn't deserve it. still don't deserve it. Haven't earned it. But in Christ... He forgave you. He paid for all of that debt, for every hurt, for every wrong, for every justice that will and must take place. And we forgive just like God forgave. In Matthew chapter 18, let me tell a really quick story. We're not far from landing the plane. Matthew chapter 18. The disciples come up to Jesus and this was all throughout Jesus teachings I mean it's pretty crazy you read over and over like he was really passionate about I love relationships and if you hold hold on to anger you're not gonna have good relationships you've got to forgive and so Jesus had these guys the disciples that heard him talk about this a lot and they come up to him and Peter is like hey guys I got a question for Jesus I got an answer I'm really proud of my answer can't wait to see what happens goes up to Jesus Jesus how many times do I forgive my brother now in Jesus' time there were like a few schools of thought, or like there were these, like you know, philosophy, or the rabbis basically, that had these camps of like, hey, this is the number you forgive. Up to three times, if they do that action, you forgive them. Other people would be like, no, you forgive them once. If they do it again, you know, they do it once, shame on me. If they do it, no. However, that expression goes. If they do it twice, shame on me. Once, shame on them, whatever that is. There were these different schools of thought. Peter comes up, he says, how many times should I forgive? And then he throws out what he was like a zinger. Up to seven times. And the reason I say, he would have been proud of it is because there's no rabbis that were teaching that so he's going hey look how generous i am up to seven huh how about that look how great i am and jesus says not seven times peter 70 70 times seven in other words you never stop forgiving and jaw drops happen all around jesus we go, what over and over and over over and over and over that's how God has forgiven you, and He tells this parable. And it's a beautiful parable, and we don't have time to read it right now. But here's the sum- summary of the parable. Jesus says, "The kingdom of heaven is like this: There was a guy who had a six billion dollar debt. Literally, if you take the number that Jesus equated, six billion dollars. This dude had hit Vegas." Way too many times. Something had happened. He got in debt to another guy, $6 billion. And the guy says, hey, you're way overdue on your debt. You've got to pay your debt. And the guy says, I can't pay it. It's $6 billion. He says, all right, take him. Take everything he owns. Take his family and sell them. And we'll take the products that are over there. Or we'll take whatever we make off of that person. And the servant, we're told, that was in debt, he throws himself to his knees. He begins to say, Jesus. Jesus. He begins to say to the person in the story, I'll pay it back. Please give me enough time. Please show me mercy. And those listening would have known, you can't pay $6 billion back. This was a debt way too great. But the servant's begging, please give me mercy, please I'll pay it back. And we're told the person he was in debt to showed him mercy and said, I will forgive the debt. The guy gets up, he goes home, he's really excited, he's gonna go tell his wife, we were in six billion. That's a good day. You get six billion out of debt, That's that's an exciting day. We're going out for champagne or sparkling grape juice or whatever you feel okay about and he goes and on the way home he bumps into a guy who owes him a thousand bucks and he grabs the guy and he says where's my thousand bucks Jesus is telling the story he's so brilliant He's a great storyteller he's telling his audience on his way home he bumps into the guy that owed him a thousand bucks He begins to shake him and say give me my thousand dollars and that guy says please give me time I'll pay it back I'll pay it back I'll pay it back and he says no and he throws and sells his family And does what was supposed to happen to him. And we're told that the original guy, the $6 billion guy who forgave the loan, finds out about it. And he comes and he says, you wicked servant. I forgave you a million times more of what you owed. Well, you can never pay back. And this guy actually could pay back what you owed him. And yet you didn't show mercy to him. You think I'm going to show mercy to you? And then Jesus says this line. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. Are you saying that, like if, you know, I'm a Christian, but I don't forgive somebody, that you're going to throw me in some jail? And Jesus is saying, if you're a Christian, you forgive people because you've been forgiven of a debt way bigger than whatever they did to you. And I know that's crazy because the pain in this room, I've been doing this 13 years. The stories that I've heard of horrific things that have happened are that, they're horrific. And Jesus would say, no matter what the pain was, and it wasn't right, and it wasn't deserved, and it wasn't fair, and it wasn't okay, but it pales in comparison to what you and I have done and sinning against God, and you must forgive, and choose to forgive. What does it look like to forgive? It looks like canceling the debt, and let me be really clear. I'm going to move quick, and I want to, best I can, help practically walk through what that looks like, I think, in your life. Inside of the parable, Jesus says forgiveness is canceling a debt that's owed. It's saying, hey, you don't owe me anymore. And I wanna help you, I wanna encourage you to do something that was really helpful for me. It was a moment I sat down in my life where I realized I was carrying a lot of hurt from my father who was absent. Wasn't present. And I began to like process through that pain and through just the counsel of scriptures like these and other believers in my life going, in order to cancel the debt, it's really hard to cancel the debt if you don't know how much the debt is, if you don't know what the debt is. And they began to go like, Man, identifying what what did he take from you or what was taken from you because if i'm going to cancel that you know this blanket statement ends up happening for a lot of christians who are like yes i forgive i feel good today and i forgive and then it pops back up in order to really forgive you got to decide hey i'm not holding this against you anymore i'm canceling what i feel like you owe me because god has already canceled all that I owe him, every way that I've sinned against him, and I sat down, and you know what I began to do? I began to write out very specifically, and maybe this will be helpful from you. You took from me having a father around. You took from me a dad who came to my sport games in college, in high school. You took from me, Monday nights, I had to drive across town to that terrible apartment. And I didn't want to, and I didn't have a choice because custody orders, you took from me having an example in my life of what it looks like to love a wife. And I'm deciding. You don't owe me anymore. You never owe me. Every sin that we commit is ultimately a sin against God. And I'm not holding on to that anymore. And that's between you and God. Every sin that you've done will be paid for on the cross, just like every sin I've done was paid for on the cross. I'm not carrying that anymore. Some of you, you've got to do this. And my heart breaks because I know he took from you your virginity. He took from you. Having a mother around her, she took from you. He took from you the shame that you carry every day from abortion that you didn't want to get and he told you you needed to get. But you've got to let it go. Holding on to it will only hurt you. And one of the most healthy things you can do is to sit down and write out this is what was taken from me, this is what I experienced, and it wasn't right. And I'm not saying it was right by forgiving it, but I'm not gonna live my life allowing my past experiences and past hurts and people that hurt me so deeply to rule my life, to rule my future marriage, to determine the type of person I'm gonna be. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not putting whether or not I'm gonna have you know, a healthy relationship with my future husband in the hands of somebody who did horrific things against me. I'm not giving you that power. And it won't be easy, and it's really hard. But God promises, when we do, not only do we look more like Jesus, we experience freedom because holding onto that bitterness, it's only gonna hurt you. And as you head into life, all of us have sinned against a perfect God. And what we do as Christians, and this is why I say there is no remedy that I know of outside of what Jesus did on the cross. where the way that we deal with sin that happened against us and terrible, painful things that happened against you is not by pretending they didn't. That doesn't work. It never will work. It's by making the decision. What you did was terrible. It hurt me, it deeply. I've carried that pain for years and it's making the decision. I'm not going to carry it anymore because I'm bringing like every hurt I've ever had in life to the God who was unjustly, unfairly, killed, crucified, and had his life taken for every father in this room who failed their kids for every sexual abuser, every racist police officer, every atrocious act, all of them were paid for. And this is the only way to experience freedom, is to accept, God, I'm a way bigger sinner, I've done way worse things than what I am asking or what I'm holding other people, or I've done equally, it's terrible things that the forgiveness that you have extended me is far greater than any forgiveness I'll ever be able to give them and I am accepting. You paid for it on the cross. Every horrific action will be paid for and was paid for on the cross will be paid for by that person for all of eternity. Every injustice will be made right, even the ones not caught on camera. And I'm not gonna hold on to that bitterness anymore. I'm not carrying that for the rest of my life. And I love you guys. I love you. And I don't want that for you but I don't have a decision over whether you're gonna release that, whether you're gonna decide, I'm not carrying this any longer. I'm not gonna define my future, but what happened in the past, what happened against me in the past, it's not a decision I get to make, that's when you have to. As you walk through that, if we can serve and care for and come alongside, we'd love to. God has extended to all people. You bring those and you drop them. They have been paid for. You don't have to hold those. You release them to me. You release them to me. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the fact that when we didn't deserve it, we don't deserve it, you extended a forgiveness to a debt we could never repay. Candidly, in life, it feels like what you ask us to do sometimes is not possible. And so I pray that you would help hundreds of us in the room who've experienced hurt at levels we can't even really put into words. I pray for the hundreds in here who've been sexually abused or raped. I pray for those who were molested by a family member, their parents divorced, their parents was an alcoholic, they abused them, they were robbed and when justly treated by coworkers, you would help us, God, to have the strength to do what feels impossible, but you went well beyond in the links you went to forgive us. And you gave us your spirit. So would you by your spirit help us, strengthen us, and move us? Will we be free? Forgiven. Worship you in song. Amen.